0: <clears throat> All right, well, as you can tell, I'm not speaking very well um, this morning, so I've, I've had a bad cough and almost lost my voice, so we're going to see how this goes. Can y'all hear me? Yeah. All right, good. <clears throat> so we'll make it as far as we can go. Um, if you got your Bible and you want to follow along, turn with me to Genesis 18, and we're going to be in the second half of the chapter. Verses. I feel fine, by the way, so don't feel sorry for me. I feel absolutely fine. I just can't talk. So, yeah, thank you. So the title is Interceding with God. Now, if you remember, for those of you that were here a couple of weeks ago, um, we started chapter 18, and, and you remember we said it was really one of the most remarkable events uh, in human history. Uh, the Lord comes down with two angels and, and literally visits uh, Abraham, at his home or at his uh, at his tent, and you know this was a, this was an amazing thing, and they 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 reiterate the promise or, or tell him again that Sarah is going to have a son uh, within within a year. Now, last week or two weeks ago, we talked a lot about hospitality and being a, a friend of God and so if if chapter eighteen had ended there. That would have been probably one of the highlights of Abraham's life, right? To have the Lord come and and visit you, uh, it would be just an an amazing thing. But that literally will pale in comparison to what is going to happen next in this chapter. Because Abraham is about to do something that, up to this point in history, in human history, has never been done uh, before. So let's look at verse, we'll pick this up in verse, we'll pick our story up in verse 16. It says, then the men, remember there's three men that come to visit Abraham. And we know it's the Lord himself and two angels. And so it says the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went, went with them to set them on their way. So after the Lord is eaten and, and with Abraham and Abraham has showed him hospitality, they get up and they begin to make their way down towards Sodom. Now, evidently, Abraham's tent is up on a high place. And so he can look down into the valley where, where Sodom is built. And so they, the Lord and the two angels begin to walk away. And Abraham kind of, you know, again, he's very hospitable. He begins to walk with them. And it, it seems that as he's walking, he turns to the angels and he asks them, kind of a rhetorical uh, question. Look at verses 17 to 21. The Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now let me, let me answer one quick question. There's a place in here where the Lord says, I'm going to go down and see if their sin is really as bad as I hear it is. Everybody see that? I'm going to go down. Now, this always brings up a question. Does God really have to come down to see what's going on? Well, you know, now we mentioned before, in one sense, they are going to go down to Sodom because Abraham's tent is up on a hill or up on somewhere where they can look down into the valley. So in a sense, they've got to go down to Sodom. But in fact, the Lord Himself is never going to go to Sodom. Only the two angels are going to actually go down and visit those those cities. So He's not really going to go down physically at all. So I don't think that's what He's talking about. He's not talking about going down physically. Because as I said, He Himself is not going to go down uh, into that city. The other thing we know is that God is, is what we call omniscient. Uh, there's a lot of words we use to describe God omnipresent, omniscient, things like that. Omniscient means that God is all-knowing. His knowledge is not limited by time, and it's not limited by distance. He knows what's going to happen in the next minute. He knows what's going to happen in the next a 1,000 years from now, or a 100 years from now, or 20 years from now. He already knows all that. He knows what's happening here. He knows what's happening in China. So His, his knowledge is not limited in any way. So when God says, I'm going to go down... And see something, or I'm going to go down and learn something. He's not talking about a head knowledge. He's just talking about that I'm going to go down and intervene. Okay, now we've seen this before. Go back if you go back to Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel. It, it, God said, "Come, let us go down and confuse their language." See, the idea of going down means I'm going to intervene. I'm gonna I'm gonna do something. In Exodus 3, 8, which we haven't gotten to yet. God says this, And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a land flowing with milk and honey. So when God says, I'm going to go down, it's the idea is I'm going to intervene. It's not that I'm going to find out something that I never knew before or anything like that. It means that I'm going to go down and I'm going to act. I'm going to do something about what is, is going on. Verse 22. So it says, The men, it's talking about the two angels... Turned from there, and they went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Now, the two angels leave, and they go down toward the city, and and the Lord himself stays there with Abraham, and and what happens next is just really incredible, Uh, and it is the first example of intercessory prayer that we have in the Bible. We have never had a, a man or a woman in the Bible ever intercede with God literally bargain with God, uh, discuss with God. You know, when God came to Noah and said, I'm going to destroy, what did Noah did Noah say anything? Noah said, Nope, just show me where the wood is and I'll start building the ark. He, he, he's not going to talk to God about that, right? Abraham is the first person that we ever have that literally enters into almost a bargaining session with God, with intercessory uh, prayer. So that's what we're going to really talk about today is interceding with God. What does it take? What kind of person can literally do that? To, to, to intercede with, with the God of the universe. Who, 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 who does it take to do that? Well, we're going to see our first example with, with Abraham. Let's, let's read. Starting in verse 23. Then Abraham drew near, and he said this to God, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose that there are 50 righteous people within that city. Will you will you destroy the whole place and not spare it, even though there are 50 righteous people who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just or do what is right? And the Lord said to him, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, then I'll spare the whole city. Now that's amazing. God says, "Okay, Abraham, if I find 50 good people, if I find 50 righteous people, I'll have mercy on the entire city. I won't destroy anybody." Okay? So so God literally again, you know, we we read this story and most of us know it. And I don't think we really, if we put ourselves in his shoes, to literally ask God, to have the guts, to have the the to, you know, what it takes, the courage to to literally ask God something like that face to face. You know, will you do this? You know, and then say, far be it from you to do those kind of things. So so God says, okay, if I find fifty, I'll spare the city. Now the bargaining begins. Now the issue becomes, it's not that. Now he knows God is willing to spare the city. Now the question becomes, how many will it take to save the city? Look at verse 27 and 28. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose that five of the fifty are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? And and, And he, talking about God, said... I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. So, so Abraham, if you put yourself in his shoes, he must have doubted that there was, that he could find 50 people, right? He must be thinking, I know what that city's like. I I don't think he's going to find 50 people. So he says, I know what I'll do. I'll just drop it by five. And I like the way, did you notice the way he did it? He says, for lack of five. He didn't just come out and say 45. He didn't put the focus on 45. He puts the focus on five. That's a good bargainer right there, right? That's what a good bargainer does. He says, hey, if it's just five less, would you destroy it then? Right? And, and, and God says, no, if I find 45 in that city, I I won't destroy it uh, for that. So Abraham now, he knows, okay, I can, you know, this number's going down. So he's encouraged, so he reduces it by another five. Look at verse 29. And again, he spoke to him and says, Okay, Lord, suppose you can find 40. We've already talked about 50. we talked about 45. What if you can find 40? And God says to Abraham, Okay, for the sake of 40, I'll spare the whole city. And and now he's he's done it three times. He's probably feeling encouraged. He sees the Lord is open to this. So now he really steps out and he drops it by 10. Verse 30. And then he said, Don't let the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose you can find 30 there. And God answered, I will not do it if I can find 30 there. And verse 31, And he said, Behold, I have undertaken to the Lord. Suppose you can find 20. He drops it 10 again. And God says, "For the sake of twenty, I'll spare the whole city. I will not destroy it if I can find twenty righteous people in that city." Now, as you're reading this story, I don't know, but you, but I almost, you almost got this. You're kind of sitting on edge, right? Because man, you're you are really stretching it here, Abraham. When when he said fifty, you should have just let it go. But forty-five, then forty, then thirty. I mean, you're really pushing it. I mean, this is God Himself that you are you're talking to and you almost get this idea that at some point God's going to lose his patience right and you're kind of on edge but see I don't think God was impatient at all I think God was pleased with Abraham because Abraham is is not asking for himself he's got compassion and empathy for other people and this is not a selfish petition this is this is something he's asking for other people I think God is pleased with that I mean, he's like, man, this Abraham, he's, he's, he's something else. We don't see any, any impatience or any, anything like that with God. God's just talking to him. So I think he's pleased with, with this. Look at verse 32. And then he said, Oh, don't let the Lord be angry, and I'll speak one more time. Suppose ten are found there, and God said, For the sake of ten, I will not. Destroy it. So he gets all the way down. If you can find ten people in the whole city that are righteous people, then God says, if I can just find ten, I'll spare the entire city. And the Lord went his way, verse 33, and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So again, once again, this is just really an incredible thing. We've never seen this before in the Bible. We've never seen a man take it upon himself to have this kind of discussion with God, almost acting as a defense attorney for the city, pleading for the city before the God of the, of the universe. Now, the question becomes, what can you and I learn from this story? You know, when we read the Bible, we talk about this all the time. You know, we can read the Bible and, and we can put it aside and we can say a little prayer and we can go about our day. You know, a lot of people do that. They got their little five minutes and they, they've spent it with God and they move on. And they spend the rest of the day hardly thinking about Him at all unless they need something, right? Unless something pops up, then you, oh, now i got to pray. But the fact is, when we read the Bible, the thing, the, 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 uh, Paul tells us in Romans that everything that was written in the Old Testament was written for us to learn from. So every time we read a story like this, we should go to it and say, okay, what can I learn? What's in this for me? What, what should I take away from this. And that's what we're trying to do this morning is is we take this story that happened, you know, 6,000 years ago, you know, between a man and God. And what does this mean for us in Waukala County today? And that's what we want to go to this morning. I want to give you uh, three things that we can take from this story. The first is this. God always reveals his plan of righteousness and justice to his friends. God is not this secretive God. In, in, in most cases. He's got a plan for this world. He's got a plan for you and I. And He wants to reveal that plan to his, to his friends. Look at verses 17 and 19. We'll go back a little bit. The Lord said, "...shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations shall be blessed in him, because I have chosen him." that word chosen in the hebrew is the exact same word as the word known i have known him it's the word for a relationship i have entered into a rela- basically what he's saying there is i have chosen to enter into a relationship with him i have chosen for him to be my friend i have chosen to be his friend see that's the whole see, what he's saying is sh- what shall i hide it from him because he's my friend Shall I hide it from him? Because we know each other. I know him. See, it's the intimacy of the relationship that prompts God to reveal to Abraham what he's about to do. See, we can't miss that. It's the intimacy of the relationship that motivates God to tell Abraham what he's about to do. See, God sees Abraham as a friend. And so He reveals to him what he's, he's going to do. It's the exact same thing, by the way, we see in the New Testament, John 15. Jesus said to the disciples, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master's doing. If you were just my servants, I wouldn't tell you what I'm going to do. It's none of your business. But I have called you friends, because all that I've heard from the Father, I have revealed to you. Okay? Okay? All this exact same thing, old testament, new thing. He wants to tell us what he's going to do. Now, this is not. I'm not talking about. He, he's not going to. You know, you're not going to get up in the morning. He's going to lay out a sheet of paper and says everything's going to happen. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is, is his plan of righteousness and judgment. It's an overall plan. He wants to reveal that to his friends. And why? Well, let's Look at the very next. Let me let me back up for one second. Watch. I want you to see the the relationship and the sameness between the Old and the New Testament. God says, I'm going to tell Abraham what I'm going to do because I know him. He's my friend. Jesus says to the disciples, you are my friends. I don't keep things from you. Look at the very next verse. Because you did not choose me, I chose you. It's the same thing. I chose you. I've chosen to enter into a relationship with you and know you as my friend. 1 Peter 2:9 says we are a chosen people, a known people. Romans 8:29 says this, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That word foreknew literally means he chose you to enter into a relationship with you. Before you were born, he chose you. He chose to be your friend. And he wants to to reveal these things to his friends let me show you a few things about God's plan of righteousness and judgment. First of all, God's plan of righteousness and judgment begins with the family. Look at verse 19. For I have chosen him, talking about Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and judgment, so the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Abraham is God's Chosen channel of blessing to the world, to all the all the nations and, and generations that are to come. But this verse here shows the connection between God's covenant and Abraham's responsibilities. And it involves the family. You see, God's promises to Abraham are unconditional. I'm going to do these things, Abraham. But at the same time, Abraham has a responsibility to train his family in the ways of the Lord. That's his responsibility. God says, I'm going to give you heirs. I'm going to, I'm going to give you your, your, uh, descendants will be as many as the stars of the sky. That's unconditional. I'm going to make it happen. But your responsibility, Abraham, is back away from the big picture and go to your family and train your children to follow me. And they'll train their children to follow me. And they'll train their children to follow me. And one day you'll look up and there'll be untold followers of me. Are you with me? His promise is huge. Abraham's responsibility is small. Train your family. Bring them up in the ways of God's righteousness. Teach them about His righteousness and His judgment. Notice it's Abraham's responsibility to do it, not Sarah's. It's not the wife's responsibility. It's, not the, it's the husband's responsibility. It's the father's responsibility to train those, those children up. And it involves teaching them about righteousness and, and judgment. Another thing about God's plan of righteousness and judgment that He wants to reveal to His friends is that no sin ever escapes His judgment. Verse 20, God says this, The Lord says, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, We've seen this before. Do you remember in Genesis 4 where Cain has killed Abel and, and, and God comes to him and says, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You see, when, when God talks about the outcry of sin, He's not talking. there's not a bunch of people over here hollering at God, saying, Are you going to do something? What He's saying is the sin itself cries out to Him. The sin itself cries out to be avenged, to be dealt with justly. See, what we have to understand is sin is always crying out to God. You and I don't hear it. Have you ever thought about, have you ever thought about a television or a radio? Do you know radio? You're riding through the car and, and you got your radio off and all of those sounds that are coming to the radio, they're in the air. Right? But you can't hear them. You only hear them until you tune that radio to a particular frequency and then you hear it. But they don't magically appear. They're already there. You're just not tuned in. See, the same thing is true for you and I. We don't hear the outcry of sin because we're not tuned into it. But it's there. It's all in the airwaves. It's all out throughout this building. It's crying out to God, avenge us. Deal with sin, right? Right? But let me tell you, we're not aware of it, but God is acutely aware of it. is frequency is tuned in. He hears every every sin cries out to Him that you ha- it has to be dealt with. It has to be dealt with with a righteous judgment. So when God comes along and deals with sin, He didn't just decide one day, oh, I'm just going to deal with it. No, He's been hearing the outcry of that sin for days, for weeks, for months, for years, sometimes for millennia. So when he decides to deal with it, he's coming to it from a place of perfect knowledge and perfect justice. We don't, we can't hear it again because we're not dealt into that frequency, but God is, and God's judgment never comes without ample warning. In Luke thirteen, you remember we covered this uh, a couple years ago when we went through the parables. Some men came to to, to Jesus one day, and they had a question for him. It says this: There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. you remember I told you all at that time, there was a situation where some people were in the temple and and Pilate sent in his soldiers and they actually, as they were sacrificing the animals, he killed them and it mingled their blood with the blood of the sacrifices. It was a terrible thing. It would be like, you know, in fact at the time we talked about church shootings, Right? how people come in and church... Well, some They had gone into the temple and killed worshipers. It wasn't anything new. And these people were upset about it. They wanted to know, why did God allow that to happen? How could God allow something like that to happen? So they asked Jesus about it. And this was His answer to them. Do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Or those 18 on whom the tower... In Siloam fell and killed them. At the time, they were building a tower in Jerusalem, and some were for it was shoddy construction or bad concrete. We don't know, but the thing fell and it killed eighteen men who were working on it. And Jesus had heard about it. And he said, "Are those eighteen who were killed by that tower that fell? Do you think they were worse offenders than everybody than everybody else who lived in Jerusalem?" And this is his answer: "No, I tell you, but you will all." Die unless you repent. See, what he's saying here is every death, every tragedy that occurs in this world is a warning to you and me to get ready. That that the outcry of sin, judgment is coming. It, it, you know, we always want to look at that and that. Why did that happen, and why did that happen? And 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 what God is saying is listen, everybody's gonna die. Everybody's gonna die. Judgment's coming for everybody may come when you're 10 or 30 or 120, but it's coming. See, what is all these things are doing is warning us so that we we won't be deceived into thinking that just because justice is delayed, it's not going to happen. It's going to happen. The outcry of sin is always before God, and He's going to deal with it. And just because this day doesn't happen, and tomorrow it doesn't happen, and the next day... Don't be deceived into thinking that it's not going to happen. It is going to come. See, 15 years earlier, by the way, Sodom had their warning. Do you remember when the kings from the east came? We talked about that. And and they took the whole city captive. And Abraham went after them and captured them back and gave them all their stuff back. See, that was their warning. Judgment's coming. Get right. You need to repent. But they just blew it off. They just said, Ah, you know, Abraham took care of us... We got all our stuff back. Whew, that was close. And then they went right back to their lives. Went right back to their sin and completely forgot about the way they were living. See, it should have served notice to them that judgment is coming. But they didn't change. And in the morning they got up, they got up that morning of judgment and it was just like any other morning. They just assumed this will be a day like any other day. And then fire and brimstone rained from heaven and destroyed them all. See, they had their warnings, but they didn't didn't heed them. The second thing we want to learn from this story is not only does God reveal His plans to us, and by the way, open your Bible. God's plans are right there, laid out in detail for what's going to happen. And His friends, by the way, and you may say, well, anybody can read the Bible. They can. But you see, His friends read the Bible and they understand it. People that don't know Him read the Bible and they don't get it. Nothing changes. But his friends do. The second thing that he wants to teach us from this story is God wants his friends to intercede in prayer uh, with him. But let me tell you a few things. See, we, we've got people in this church, sometimes we refer to them as prayer warriors. They just seem to really have a connection with God, right? And I'm sure if I went around the room, some of us here spend hours in prayer. Some of us here spend minutes in prayer. Christians seem to have this, you know, different levels of, of a prayer life. But for an intercessor, for someone to be an intercessor with God, what does it take? Well, the first thing it takes is you have to draw near to him. There's a really interesting thing in this story. When it first, verse 23, it says this, when the two angels had walked off, it says Abraham drew near to him. I mean, he actually got up close to him, right? Now, you think, well, you know, what's the big deal? Well, see, the fact is, you've already got to be close to God to intercede with Him. See, this this chapter is a story really... Well, this, this, this eight, 17, 18, 19 is a really a story of two men. Two righteous men, by the way. One is named Abraham and one is named Lot. Lot is living in Sodom. He's living in the world. See, he can't draw near to God because he's too entwined with the world. Abraham's living in a tent up on a hill by himself, he's unencumbered by the world. So he's able to draw near to God. See, that's the difference. One, one is separate from Sodom, one is separate from the world, and the other is, 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 is all caught up in it. One can draw near to God, the other can't. See, to intercede with God, next thing we must do is we must appeal to His character. See, why you may ask, why is Abraham asking? Well, I, undoubtedly, Abraham is concern for Lot. Why did Abraham go rescue Sodom 15 years earlier? Because Lot was in the city. That was his kinfolk, right? Why is he asking now to spare the city? Because Lot and his family are in that city. That, that is no doubt Abraham's motivation for this prayer. He wants to save his family. He wants to save his kinfolk. But I want you to notice what his appeal is based on. He doesn't go to God and say, God, i got a family in that city. And, and Lot, I mean, I know he's made some mistakes, but he's a good man. Lord, will you do this for me? Well, I, I'm kind of close to you. Will you will you spare him for me? See, he doesn't pray like that. He prays based on the character of God. Go, go back real quick and look at verse 25. Watch what he says. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous suffer the same fate as the wicked, Far be that from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right. See, he's appealing to God's character. He's not saying this is what I want. He's saying this is your character, God. This is what you should do. You're God. That's that's a completely different prayer life. It's a completely different way to pray. See, he's telling God your justice dictates that you cannot treat the righteous the same as the wicked. You can't do that, God. And he was right. God can't do that. So he's saying, based on that, will you spare the city? And God said he would. See, so many times our prayers are based on what we want, not what God wants. Let me say it again. So much of our prayer life is based on what I want, not what, what does God want. See, we need to remember that, that praying is not asking God to do my will. It's asking Him to do His will. God, do what you, you know, this is your will, God. Do it. Glorify yourself. So many times we're, oh, God, you know, I'm just, I'm this, I'm that, my family's this, it's just all about me, 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 me. See, Abraham comes and says, God, this is, this is about you. This is all about you. And that's where, and when you get to intercessory prayer, you leave the shallow prayer of an immature Christian, and you delve into the deep wells of prayer of a mature Christian. When you get there, it's about what God wants, not what do I want, right? To intercede with God, we must maintain a right perspective. There's also something very interesting in his story. Abraham has something I would call a reverent boldness, right? He just comes to God and says, hey, I know I shouldn't be asking this, and I'm just, I'm just dust and ashes, but I'm going to ask it anyway. But you see, he never presumes that God owes him anything. He has this right perspective. And you see it in verses 27 to 32. Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Oh, don't let the Lord be angry. I'm going to speak one more time. See, he understands who God is and who He is. He understands that. And he understands, by the way, that it's just it—it it, it really is God's grace in this relationship that even allows Him to come before that throne with mercy. But He never goes to the point of thinking, "God, you owe me this," right? It's all it, it, He understands. I am dust and ashes, and you are—you are God. So He prays for Sodom with, with a very real awareness of His own sinfulness. And you and I should always do the exact same thing. We should have that same perspective. Uh, in our prayers, we need a boldness. In fact, the Bible tells us in the New Testament to come boldly before the throne of grace. But we understand we can only come boldly because we're covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. Our sinfulness is covered by His righteousness. That's the only reason that that we can we can do that. One last thing: to intercede with God, we must be persistent. Abraham just kept pushing, didn't he? Kept pushing. In fact, as I said, when we read it, we get kind of nervous. We're, okay, Abraham, that's enough. Don't go any further. And he just goes a little bit further. And he just kept pushing and pushing until he went as far as he dared. Now, here's a really good question. Why did he stop at ten? Why didn't he go to five? Why didn't he go to three? Why didn't he just say one? God, if you can just find one. Why did he not keep going? I, I don't. I can't answer that question because the Bible doesn't tell us. It could be that he thought, you know what, I just, I, I, I don't dare go any further. Maybe he thinks, you know, I've, 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 I've gone as far as I can go. Maybe he was confident, you know, you got Lot and his wife and Lot had two daughters and they got two husbands. Um, now you're already up to six. Presumably, maybe they had some children. You know, maybe he thought ten is plenty. I mean, if I can just get ten, right? I mean, Lot and the daughters and the husbands, it's got to be at least ten of them. Maybe he thought, that's enough. In the end, the fact is, we don't know. The Bible doesn't uh, tell us that. What I can tell you, though, is that Abraham did exactly what you and I are taught to do. In Luke eleven five 5 through 8, Jesus says this, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And, and he will answer from within, Don't bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. This is Jesus says this, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I mean, what Jesus is teaching us there, he's saying, and it's kind of a blatant story. He says, listen, if you just come to me and knock one time, I may not answer. Even though you're my friend. But if you're persistent, you just keep knocking. After a while, you're just bothering me. I mean, he literally says, you're just bothering me. You see what he's teaching there? The teaching here at the end, be persistent. If you don't get it the first time, keep asking. Keep asking. Keep asking. And that's what Abraham did. I tell you, when you study the Old Testament, you study the New Testament, they are so perfectly aligned with one another. They are so perfectly aligned. What what God teaches in the old, He teaches in the new. You can always find examples of that, as you can can here. Let's let's bring it to a conclusion with this. I want you to think for just a moment. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes, and think about the situation that he found himself in as he's leaving his tent. He's walking toward, kind of you know, going along with them a little ways as they as they leave towards Sodom. God has spoken. He says he's going to destroy the city. I'm sure Abraham is sitting there thinking, what can I do? This is the God of the universe. He said, I'm going to destroy the city. That This must be his will. What can I do? I'm just a man. Well, see, what Abraham can do is the exact same thing that you and I can do, and that's pray. And see, what Abraham understood, and and let me say this is so important. What Abraham understood is something that you and I need to understand. See, the reason that Abraham could go to God and ask something, almost daringly ask this, is because he understood two great truths about God. Number one, God is great. Number two, God is good. God is great and God is good. Both of those great truths are in the 18th chapter. In in, in 1814, it says this, Is anything too hard for the Lord? See, that's God is great. And then in verse 25, Abraham says, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? God is good. See, Abraham understood those two great truths. That God is great, but also that God is, is good. And that first truth, that God is great, see, that should rebuke all worry and lack of prayer in our lives. See, every time we worry about the future, we're rejecting that truth that God can do anything. Right? He can do anything. So when we come to something, even if it's insurmountable, we're not, we're not left with no hope. We're not left with nothing we can do. We can do what Abraham did, and that's go to God in prayer. Because God is great. He can do anything. And Abraham understood that. The question is, do you and I understand it? The second truth, God is good... This is the, the longer I live, this is probably one of the greatest truths that you'll ever come across in your life, that God is good. Because that truth right there will answer life's most perplexing questions. It will answer life's, but when when sickness hits, when tragedy hits, and you're going through your mind figuring out why did this happen, why did this happen, the one thing you can rest on is that God is good. This week, uh, last week, I weren't here. We went up to uh, Columbus, Georgia. Went up through Colquitt. And and if you hadn't been up through that area, it is horrible. I don't know how many of y'all drove up through there, but I could not believe what I saw. Miles and miles and miles of blue tarps on roofs and everything just gone. Trees everywhere. And I went by this one place, and a guy had written up on his roof, God is good. God is good. See, when all that happens and you come outside your door that morning your roof's gone and, and your yard's gone and, and, and there's a truth you can stand on when everything else falls to the side, God is good. Do I understand why that happened? No, but God is good. Do I understand why I got this diagnosis? No, but God is good. Do I understand why this tragedy happened to my family? No, but God is good. What a, what a truth To hold on to, see that God, who is all powerful and all knowing, is also merciful and kind and loving and just. He's got infinite power and he's infinitely pure. I mean, those two things are just what else? What else do you need to get through this? Through this life, see, we all have problems and circumstances that we can't understand. There is no doubt in my mind. We've all. You don't. I used to tell the kids when I teach them. It's not a question of when it's going to happen it's going to, or if it's going to happen. I mean, it's not a question of if it's going to happen. It's a question of when it's going to happen. You do not get through this life without being hurt. You don't get through this life without suffering. You just don't. It doesn't happen. And when all that hits you, those two great truths, God is good and God is great. You can rest in this. Our God is an all-powerful God who can do anything. But He employs that power In justice, truth, mercy, and love. What a comfort that should be for for each and every one of us. When any situation is beyond our control, remember it's not beyond God's. We should pray always. The Bible tells us this. Always pray. Always pray. But mature Christians are those who pray even more when the times get darkest. A lot of times you'll find immature Christians, when things start going bad they tend to back away from prayer. Or at least very cursory prayers. Everybody with me? But mature Christians, people that draw near to Him, that know Him, they just go deeper. They just go deeper because they know I've got to hold on to those truths. When God says, I'm going to destroy that city, Abraham thinks, what can I do? Oh, I know. I can talk to God because He's great and because He's good. So we should always pray that God will act in, accord, in accordance with His character. God will always act in accordance with His character. And with infinite power, He can do anything in response to our petitions. When we're helpless, we're never hopeless because we always have prayer. One final thought. Some of you may read this story and you may think at first glance that Abraham changed God's mind. When you read the story, it almost seems that Abraham changed God's mind, but God never changes His mind. You you don't talk God into changing His mind. His will is always accomplished. See what He's doing. See God wants to show mercy. He wants to show mercy, and He's allowing Abraham to participate in that. What a privilege! See that's I, I, listen. I don't understand prayer. I don't even. I don't even begin to understand how it is that we can ask God and then God does it. And He says, ask me and I'll do it. Well, if He wanted to do it, why don't He just do it? Why does He need me to ask Him to do it, right? It it just gets in this, I don't get it. What I do know though is He allows us to participate in His will. That's the only thing I can tell you. He allows us to participate. There may be somebody in your family that He wants to save, that He's planning on saving, and He wants to use your prayers to accomplish that. He's allowing you to participate in their salvation. By the way, if they're going to be saved, the Bible tells me He foreknew them before they were born. He already knew that was going to happen. He already plans for it to happen, but He wants you to participate in that. Do I understand that? That blows my mind. It blows my mind. All I know is it's simple. When God puts somebody on my mind or on your mind, pray. Pray for them. There's a reason that He's doing that. Okay, He wants us to intercede with Him. He wants us to be a part of what He's doing and what He's going to do. You see, the point of stories like this is to encourage you and I to pray. To make intercession with God. We are allowed to participate sometimes in changing history. Sometimes it's just participate in changing a life. It is an amazing thing that you and I have the the absolute privilege to do. When God says, talk to me, ask me something, ask me, right? We just have to understand what His will is. Now, one thing we do know, and this this is also amazing, and this is a good segue in the next week, Abraham's hopes exceeded the reality, didn't he? He thought, man, if there's just ten, well, it turns out there wasn't ten. There was not ten righteous in that whole city. And the city itself ends up being destroyed. Okay, But even the destruction of that city reveals a divine truth. You see, God's grace always exceeds our expectations. He's pleading with God, want to save Lot's life. And he's saying, if you can just find 40, 35, 25, 20, go on down the line. If you can just get 10. And he feels like, okay, the city's going to be saved. But God, they, the angels go down and they can't find 10. And so the city is going to be destroyed. But even in the destruction of city, guess who, what God does? He remembers Abraham. And he saves, it was less than 10. He didn't spare the whole city, but he pulled out the righteous few. You see, in the end, God's character rose to the top because Abraham was right. He will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. He can't do that. He can't treat them the same according to his character. And he doesn't, but it's not because of Abraham's prayer. It's just because of grace. Absolute, unmitigated, unearned, unmerited favor of God. And, And his grace will always exceed our expectations. Next week, we'll turn to chapter 19, and uh, the angels are going to go down into Sodom. We're going to see what they find there, and we're going to take a look at what it means to be a, a worldly uh, believer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Genesis 18. We thank you for uh, Abraham and the...